Welcome to the Enneagram 2.0 podcast. I'm Beatrice Chestnut. And I'm Wudano Pais. And today we are talking to Trent Thornley, who is a good friend of ours and who is a self-preservation six. And it's we are continuing our series in interviewing people of different types and now different subtypes um, to find out what's really helped them most in their growth journey, to find out more about the type, the subtype, and the person um, in terms of how they experience their Enneagram type and what they've done to grow. Yeah. Trent, so uh, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. Uh, it's an honor for us. And maybe you could just introduce yourself briefly uh, uh, when we start here now. Yeah, maybe sure. just tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came to the Enneagram, you know, anything you want our listeners to know about about you. Okay, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And I have a great deal of admiration and respect and affection for both of you and the work you're doing. So it's, it's a joy to be here. Uh, for me, um, well, how does, how does one introduce oneself? So um, one thing is that I'm a reverend. <laughs> I'm actually ordained in a Christian tradition, the Metropolitan Community Churches, which is a, a, a progressive Christian denomination with an outreach to the queer community. And I'm ordained also in Enigma Buddhist tradition um, under uh, the teacher of Anam Tupton. And so... Um, yeah, I use he, him pronouns. I like to say that just because I, I do think that it's important to kind of train ourselves to be more inclusive. And um, I am currently serving as the executive director of something called the San Francisco Night Ministry, which is a nonprofit in San Francisco celebrating our 60th anniversary this year. For 60 years, we've been out walking the streets of San Francisco and encountering people and deeply listening to their stories um, essentially doing what's called chaplaincy, community chaplaincy. And at the Night Ministry, I'm an educator. So I work in something called clinical pastoral education. And it's important to know that because that's actually a part, big part of my Enneagram journey. Uh, CPE or clinical pastoral education is the training of new ministers and chaplains. A lot of uh, denominations, both Jewish and Christian and others, require field training uh, in CPE in order to be ordained. And so the night ministry has a very unique accredited CPE program at our, at our site. So students come out with us at night and walk the streets and, and learn and grow in themselves and form in themselves as leaders through that practice. And, uh, and that's how I came to the Enneagram because I learned about the Enneagram in my own CPE training. Mm -hmm. So CPE training, meaning how, how you train chaplains and people who do this outreach. And when you say walk the streets, um, can you say a little bit more exactly about what you mean, what they do? Yeah, so chaplains in general are people who are doing spiritual care uh, in a variety of settings, usually somewhere out in the field. So you have hospital chaplains, prison chaplains, military chaplains, and we are community chaplains. So we'll go out at night and we'll walk and just be available to people and uh, usually wear religious insignia that's appropriate to our tradition, or sometimes just a night ministry jacket, something like that. And that invites a kind of conversation with people. So, you know, it's not uncommon for someone who's maybe unhoused, uh, who's maybe even actively using substances to 
come up and say, you know, my mother just passed away two weeks ago and I haven't had anyone to talk to about it. You know, that kind of thing. Would you pray with me? Um, you know, there's a lot of faith and searching in those kinds of environments <laughs> in, in the hospital room, in the foxhole, uh, living unhoused uh, on the streets. So there's a, there's a ripeness often and a readiness to confront and to work through some of these existential concerns, which is what chaplains do. Beautiful, wow. very beautiful. Thank you for the good work you do. That's yeah. amazing. I just want to add that uh, just for our listeners, that Trent was up to very recently, the president of the International Enneagram Association, the IEA, just like B and I were in the past. Yeah. And I know you also used to be an attorney in your first career. Yes. Yeah. So I worked as an attorney for almost 20 years in San Francisco. And, but, but, you know, uh, I've always been a seeker ever since I was a boy. I've been a spiritual seeker. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what, what happened to come into this life, but this life for me has been marked by the spiritual search, um, often at the expense of other things like money, <laughs> you know, or a partnership, you know, some of the things that are sort of traditional indicia of how to kind of move through life, uh, security and partnership and those things, all of which are good. And I, I, I want and enjoy some, to some extent, those things, but the spiritual search has been the defining feature of my life. And so in a way, when I left the law, I was really answering a deeper call that had always been there. Yes, Makes beautiful. Sense. And it shows that you are a seeker, knowing you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I don't, I didn't ask for it. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I think some, somehow or another, with the, what are the mysteries or the laws of the cosmos, it was just, this is, this is my life to do this work. And so, um, so in, in a way, I came to the Enneagram fairly late in life, and not, yeah, fairly later in life, I would say, because I, I think I first heard of the Enneagram when I was 41 years old. So that that was after quite a bit of inner work and work with um, spiritual traditions and practices. Uh, at that point, I was very, very steeped in the Buddhist tradition and, and still am. Uh, but I was I was a, a very serious practitioner with a couple of teachers and lineages. And so uh, I think that groundwork... I, I mean, it's all part of the work, you know, right? The capital W work, <laughs> you know, uh, of, of uh, <clears throat> resisting habits or in our Buddhist parlance, we might say our karma, you know, kind yeah. of becoming aware of karma and working with it in order to create the conditions for shaking out of it, to, for waking up out of it and for maybe enacting those same patterns in a new and a fresh and a free and a conscious way you know, in service. So um, I had already been kind of doing a lot of that work through my Buddhist traditions. So then when I first encountered the Enneagram uh, in, in clinical pastoral education, it was a bit of an, well, it was an aha and an uh-oh in the way that <laughs> encountering one's type is an uh-oh. It's never just an aha. It's like, uh-oh. Oh, <laughs> But it was very quick for me. It was very easy to see it because I'd already been doing a lot of practices around mindfulness and self essentially self-observation um, that it, it had an immediate ring to it uh, in my being. Mm -hmm. 
Wow, wow. So, um, so how exactly did you find the Enneagram and, and can you say sort of how you came to find your type and maybe what the early stage of your sort of becoming aware of your type and working with it was like? And maybe one of the ahas and one of the oh <laughs> <laughs> Well, there, there are a lot of uh-ohs, <laughs> so we only have an hour podcast. <laughs> um, when we talked to Russ, he talked about it as the ouchie. <laughs> ouchie yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, um, yeah, so so again, clinical pastoral education, it's this field training for ministers and chaplains. So I was in my own CPE residency, and my, my supervisor, who we work with closely in CPE, there's a lot of one-on-one work, group work. It's a very, you know, almost in a traditional spiritual teacher sense, they're really kind of up in your grill, you know, kind of like they're really, it's very, very intimate. And uh, he actually is an Enneagram five, he's a sexual five. And so he, uh, in particular, was very observant and uh, had gotten to know me uh, for quite a bit uh, in my year-long residency. So about halfway through the residency, he ran an Enneagram workshop because he was very interested in the Enneagram and had been using it for a while. And I was in a room of about 25 uh, other CPE students and supervisors and everyone was kind of going around the circle talking about their Enneagram type and what type they would identify with. And I was amazed because everyone seemed to have already experienced the Enneagram or knew about it and they knew their type number. And I I had never heard of the Enneagram. And so um, when he got to me, uh, you know, I I like to say that we approach the Enneagram through our Enneagram style. So when he got to me, I said, well, I don't, you know, I don't know about this. You know, where does it come from? It it just feels like it's not quite right. Or I'm a little skeptical of these kinds of systems, you know, and he just pointed at me and he said, you're a six. So in doing so, he probably violated every, you know, code of ethics around how to do the Enneagram, you know, but he was also, to be fair, he was somebody who was my teacher. You know, he was six months in, I mean, he had the basis to say that and, and also, I think there was a little bit of catching me red-handed uh, because, of course, I was enacting the six pattern, you know, in that very moment. So it was, it was also a bit of one of those kind of, um, you know, uh, Satori kind of Zen, you know, hit you with the stick kind of moments, uh, metaphorically. And, uh, and so I looked back at the descriptions. I thought I was maybe a kind of a nine, um, but I looked back at the descriptions and I, I saw... Uh, again, probably with the help of seeing myself in that moment, uh, very quickly, the six patterns made a lot of sense to me. And so... uh, You don't have the six pattern pattern of doubting to the end, if you're a six. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, and I'm I'm a little embarrassed to say, too, that it's also the six pattern of having an authority tell me what pattern I am. (laughs) There's also a little bit of that, you know, but but it was self-confirmed. Yes, it was self-confirmed. And yeah, just the kind of, um, I think some of the uh-ohs were uh, around uh, seeing my own disowned hostility, uh, the way that I can be quite hostile in, in my you know, passive aggressive ways, the way that I can sort of interrogate uh, people and, and kind of come off as sort of poking or interrogating in a very irritating way that to me feels a bit like just sort of searching for the truth, which underneath that is really just security. You know, is this a secure relationship? Can I trust you? But that kind of uh, poking and prodding 
uh, you know, really unconsciously uh, in, the, in the way that that, that can be received um, was just deeply embarrassing and, you know, shame invoking. Um, I actually had a friend of mine, a good friend uh, of mine who there's nothing to do with the Enneagram per se, but I, at one point uh, he took me aside and said, you know, sometimes when we're just out with a group of friends, you'll kind of like poke people, you know, you'll actually kind of like do this quick little poke or something. And people don't like that. <laughs> I was like, and I think I'd been sort of met, you know, I've been poking people even without even physically doing it, I've been poking people a lot. And so that was one of the big uh ohs. Um, yeah, but there's, there, there are more, but that's just an example. Sounds like as a seeker, you were lucky enough to have people that gave you good feedback. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's also a way in which, uh, as anyone who's who's been on the path probably understands, you 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 also yearn for that. You want that. You know, you don't. You you both don't want it, and you want it because you know how deeply you need it. And so, uh, you know, I think the more we're open to receiving feedback, the uh, better chances we have of progressing. Yes, exactly. Um, and it, it also sounds like, you know, you trusted this te this supervisor who knew you pretty well by that time, which maybe look, if we can put a positive spin on it, there might be some of that as well as that you were, and you were able to take it in. I think some sixes in that skepticism, it becomes a little bit more of a shield where, you know, you're so skeptical, you're not going to hear any good arguments, but it sounds like you allowed yourself to, to, to be, to take advantage of, of being hit by the stick by someone who knew you well, and you probably trusted at that point. So, so. Yeah. Well, and I have noticed that, uh, uh, yeah, other sixes, of, um, of course, when I first got into the Enneagram, I think I was a bit of a bull in a china shop in the sense of, you know, terrorizing all of my friends and family with this, with this very esoteric deep information that they, most of them probably didn't care to hear about. But, uh, but I do find that the, yeah, the six pattern can be quite slippery that way. Right. Because there's always that, you know, doubting and the kind of defense that can be put up. So yeah, I think in that moment I was just able to see myself doing it. And I think that's what helped too, including, you know, like you said, the trust I had in, in the supervisor. Mm -hmm. And what's been your relationship with fear um, as a six, since that's the passion and it's so central? Ongoing, pervasive, <laughs> unifying theme. Um, yeah, what, 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 first, I, I guess I do want to say that I, I, I feel even more today that the path involves working on all of the vices and all of the connecting lines. And I, I really do believe and see that in my experience that, you know, I'm working on all of these different patterns. So I think it's important. It just feels important for me to say that, you know, that it's not just one thing that I'm working on. There's no question that the fear is, I guess, in Gurdjieffian words, you know, the chief feature, the chief aspect that I'm, I'm working on. Um, and yet I see, I see the vanity of the three very clearly. I see the, you know, the, uh, sloth of the nine in me very clearly, that kind of thing. But the two for, airline connected points of six. Yeah. yeah the, the, the nine and nine and, and also the seven and five, you know, I have done a lot of both seven and five patterns, different, different times in my life, emphasizing one 
of those wings or the other. So, um, but, but yeah, fear it's for, for me, it's showed up. Well, first of all, I, I had to learn what fear really was or how it was presenting because it, it's, it wasn't always that I was aware that I was afraid. And, and I think that's also a journey for probably a lot of sixes is to realize that um, planning or, uh, you know, planning for outcomes, you know, thinking through scenarios, usually worst case scenarios, going through what could be problems, troubleshooting, all of those can be really an expression of the underlying uh, fear or anxiety or uh, yeah, worrying, I think is a good way. I think probably a lot of people who are sixes and I'm for myself have been told they were worriers. So if, if you know, that might be a clue. Um, yeah. So just to realize that all of those things are actually fear related was a revelation because then you can see just how I could see how, just how pervasive the patterns were. Oh, nice. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so anxiety usually comes uh, side by side with fear. Would you say that that is as pervasive for you or used to be at the very least? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I guess I, I probably should be a little bit more precise about the, the some of the definitions because I, I, um, I've personally never really related to the word anxiety. I don't consider myself an anxious person. Uh, but what I, I guess when I think of anxiety or the way I'm using it is a kind of low grade, uh, yeah, worry or a low grade kind of vague sense that something might be off. And probably if I looked at that more deeply, something is a little insecure. Something is not going to be safe, you know, the, uh -huh. in sort of traditional language. But that, you know, that actually is reality that it's always changing that <laughs> there is actually nothing that's constant and stable so that is the reality of the situation is that things are always sort of shifting and so i think the anxiety is around that attachment to wanting it to be kind of stable and and just kind of recognizing in a very deep way that things are changing right things are always changing i think we don't control them Right. Yeah. I think the reason of my question is because I experience you as being less anxious uh, than other, other uh, sixes. And I wonder if this comes from your Buddhist uh, training, meditation and more. Uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, again, I'd, I'd say that I probably came to the, the um, use of the Enneagram through that lens. Um, you know, when you, start to, I guess when I started to, I had a teacher once say that, you know, uh, a kind of an awakening experience can't take the place of therapy because we still need to do our sort of uh, relative work and we need to be able to move in the world. Um, but it can sure go a long way to being helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that those kinds of experiences on the path were helpful to clear away some of the underlying charge. Now that doesn't mean that, I mean, I still work every day on, on these patterns, um, often in a very, um, sometimes in a very subtle form um, that, you know, that there's still, there's still lots of growth to be had, no question. 
but the the Buddhist path really helped me to see some of these things, um, you know, clearly. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. One thing I noticed uh, is that in preparation for this interview with you, uh, we gave you the opportunity of ask us questions about what we were going to do, and you didn't ask any. And that. <laughs> And that is sort of surprising for a six, but also a very good sign. So how did you get there? Because I'm pretty sure that yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be the case in the past. I think what we we're saying is you, you, yeah, we, I think what we're saying is you seem like a very healthy six. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's nice to hear. Uh, yeah, that's nice to hear. But I uh, definitely can tell you on, on the inside, there's still a lot of work happening. <laughs> you know, under the hood, <laughs> there's still some, uh, there's still, there's still quite a few gears that are grinding. Come on, but, uh, talk, talk to us about your positives. Don't be sick positive. in that sense. Yeah. Well, actually, I think questions is one of them. I mean, I, for, for my part, I feel like all of the growing edges are the gifts. And that's that's the theory that I use the Enneagram with when I'm working with my students now as a clinical pastoral education uh, educator, which is, look, these patterns, first of all, we all have all of these needs, you know, something like the need for security, the need for whatever it is, appreciation, you know, the need for validation. We all have, this is just human. It's just that, you know, when you're kind of fixated in a type, you're just over-functioning with that. You're just really, really going into it. And so that I can experience, but then that's also the kind of gift. And so I feel like questions is a perfect example. Yeah, there, there's an anxious way to ask a bunch of questions and there's a profoundly insightful way that you can ask just the right question with somebody that unlocks, or even for yourself, you know, that the question, even without having an answer, has a, a power to it to unlock very profound shifts or realizations, insight. So I feel like that is one of the gifts is is working with insight. Um, I also feel like uh, the the emotions and the patterns kind of have a raw energy to them. Mm-hmm. So for example, fear for me, y- yes, there's moments of being fearful and I still have unconscious moments where you know, like I, I think I've said in, in uh, these other panel setting, you know, I'll walk past a, a dog and I'll immediately see it biting me, that kind of thing. You know, it's just part of the automatic, oh, okay, and I have to kind of swerve around it. Or uh, So it has that. But then the more that uh, there's a kind of consciousness to it, fear really is, for me, the basis of self-reflection. You know, fear is the backward step. It's the it, it, it's the raw material of discernment, you know, in a sense. So it's it's very related, you know, in that way. So it's kind of like sixes can be incredibly discerning, you know, and I, I have moments of being very discerning. And I can also um, in, in myself and, and when it happens skillfully with others, I can I can slice something open very safely you know, a kind of surgical slice something open to let it out. Now, sometimes the knife slips and I hurt myself or somebody else, and that's hard to see. Uh, but that's better than using the knife <laughs> sort of unconsciously to slice something open, which is the, maybe a kind of another more graphic version of the poking I was talking about earlier. But um, but they're all the, they're all kind of on a scale, is my point. Is that it's not like the gift is somehow different than the growing edge. 
There's just there's just a way in which the energy is more refined um, as it becomes a kind of gift to the world. And um, I, I don't see any end to the pattern. I feel like the pattern is the, just the operating system that this life will move through. And um, it, it's not that the, the pattern ends. It's just that it's used in a more conscious and healthy and in a way that becomes a gift to the world. Right. And it sounds like the gift really is in working with like what you, what's the raw material that you find yourself with in whatever type you are, you know, like seeing fear as a path, you know, to something where it can be turned into something through consciousness uh, that's helpful to you or to others, you know, because we often say sort of the ego on itself isn't so good, um, but it's the utilizing of consciousness of ego that actually brings us beyond ego into more of who we really are or into something higher that, that we seek for when we're seekers. Nice. Yeah. I guess in Buddhist parlance, you'd say that's the karma that ends karma because it's all yeah. still patterns, <laughs> but you can, you can, you can have patterns that are healthier and you can program yourself with a healthy point of view. That's really just the Dharma. And then when you live in accordance with that view, it can bring you closer and closer to the moment that takes you beyond the views. Right, right. And so we we like to focus a lot on subtype in our teaching um, and the particular approach we use that comes from Claudio Naranjo. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about being a self-preservation six and maybe how you saw your subtype, how you discerned that and how understanding your subtype has also helped you in addition to knowing that you're a six and what those patterns are. Well, when I first encountered the subtypes, I thought I was maybe social dominant. And I, I still feel that I have a close social second, I guess you could say. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but my supervisor also, he was reading your book, B, your uh, book on uh, the complete, is it the complete Enneagram that has the subtypes? And uh, you have a passage in there from a self-preservation six. And he, he, he at one point pulled me aside. He said, I was just reading, rereading this. This sounds a lot like you as a lawyer. <laughs> I, mean, it's just, I think it was a lawyer in the, in the narrative. I think this one is you. So I, 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 that I didn't accept right away because I really felt like maybe the social six uh, in the sense of finding, I, I know for me, finding the, the Buddhist path in particular was such right. a relief to find, oh, here is uh, something I can really trust and believe in and it's reliable um, and, and it gets results. So, you know, that looking for a system, I think, was more. But then when I found the self-preservation, yeah, I, I, um, I could see more, more clearly that that's probably my home base. What would and, be uh, one or two things that made you realize that, that, you know, the, the self-press six descriptions? Well, I, I think the presentation, the more sort of warm and friendly, using friendliness to disarm. I mean, that's very, very deep pattern. Um, uh, my home, you know, I, I love my home. <laughs> I love the safety of my home. I have a certain pride in my home. Um and also, in a weird way, the, the way in which it can be kind of a blind thing, too. I, I can actually be quite risky and dangerous with my body or with my home. You know, like it, it, it's a weird thing. It's, it's both a center of attention and something that I, I put a lot of 
energy into preserving my myself, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always healthy or that my home is stable. So there's a way in which it's kind of both, but there's just a lot of attention around it, mm -hmm. around those kinds of concerns. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. We often point out that being self-preservation dominant doesn't mean that you're taking care of yourself in a good right. way. It more <laughs> means that you pay attention to certain things, sometimes not always the right things, uh, and sometimes out of a sense of, you know, just fear around, will I be okay? Is everything okay? Uh, not that it's, you're always making decisions that are good for you, because like you're saying, it kind of overfunctions in certain ways. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I hear from self-press sixes at times that, um, even though they avoid risks and they run away from risks that they might even get bored about not going for <laughs> some adrenaline. Maybe what you said is referring to that. You tell me or not, but, but, um, do you agree that as a self press six, you are mostly phobic as in running away from risks and avoiding them as opposed to facing them, confronting them like a sexual six? Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, I, I, I do say that it, it, I have the counterphobic, I've got the phobic, and I know it's kind of a sixth answer to say that, yes, I've got this and I've got that, but it, it, it does feel true to me. I, I see moments of counterphobia very clearly as well. Uh, but that said, yeah, I think overall I'm, I'm more phobic. And I like the point about adrenaline, you know, for, uh, I backpacked around the world for, uh, almost 10 months just on my own, uh, in the, in the late nineties with yeah. just me in a backpack and a couple of airline tickets. Um, and so that feels pretty <laughs> in terms of just self-preservation, you know, I didn't really have a plan. I was using all, all of my savings, you know, yeah. Yeah. so, you know, again, it wasn't really like a kind of conservation six, I guess is another way you can say it, it wasn't really conserving in the way that you might traditionally think of it, but there's still something about, yeah, attention to even in a base level bodily safety and security uh, that yeah. that does bring, take a lot of my attention unconsciously, can I especially. You, I'm sorry, I don't didn't mean to interrupt, yeah. but uh, can I ask you uh, to what extent did you plan for that backpacking trip in the 90s and sort of had calculated risks? Or not? Yeah, I did. Uh, well, it, that was a time where I had to buy all of my paper plane tickets. This would probably mean nothing to most of your most of your younger viewers, but I had to have <laughs> all of my paper tickets. And uh, this was actually before the smartphone, so I had pages from Lonely Planet. Um, and uh, you know, I, I had the kind of general plan of which city I would go into in what order. But beyond that, I just showed up in every city and I would go to one hostel or something and find out what was good to do there and exchange uh, information and, and sometimes even pages out of like a Lonely Planet guidebook, that kind of thing. Um, and, and that was intentional. You know, I wanted to be able to have that kind of and that's partly also my seven-ish too, my seven-ish kind of influence. But I really wanted to have that as that uh, spontaneity and that freedom to just see what would arise. Right. And I do think that you often hear from sixes that even sixes that can tend to run away more or feel more active fear 
that there have been moments or times in their life when they more dance with that risk. You know, it's almost like it's enlivening to lean into risk or danger as a way of, you know, testing yourself or, or, you know, growing or, you know, feeling alive with the challenge. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, fear is pretty enlivening. <laughs> I mean, when, you're, when you're really scared, you're really, I mean, you could be really, you know, yeah. it's, um, yeah, so. I think you have an even more interesting story about another trip, another travel you were doing. Oh, you're talking about the time I was hijacked <laughs> on a hijacked plane. Yeah. So, and actually that was the same, that was the same trip around the world. Um, uh, and, and yeah, so I was, I was on a hijacked plane from Istanbul to Cairo. And, and I like the way you introduced that story when you were on a panel for me once you said, um, as a good six, I always had a hijack plan. I always planned in my head what would happen if I got hijacked. And then I did. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That was yeah. Amazing. Well, you know, I had written an email after the incident. I'd, I'd written an email to friends and family, and uh, it was just a very stream of consciousness da dashed it off. And I saved that email, and it was years later when I learned the Enneagram, and I saw my six pattern, and then I went back to the email and just saw how clear it was that I was Enneagram six. And one of the comments that I made is that I was not... Um, fearful in the moment. And I think a lot of sixes would report this, right? Is that um, there's a kind of calm in the crisis because I had my plan. I had already thought through the scenario of what happens if I'm on a hijacked plane. That's not normal. People don't always, you know, I think if you're not a six, you would be maybe a little puzzled by that. But um, yeah, the idea that I've already run all the worst case scenarios and I've planned for them is the kind of ongoing anxiety of the six and to not realize that that's a fear pattern uh, and that you're actually, you know, scaring yourself in, in all of that planning. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's the work of this, uh, for me as, as a six. But yeah. So I had my, I had my hijack plan. And, and the other thing about it was <clears throat> it didn't really even on some level make a lot of sense. The whole plan was basically I would change my seats and hide, and hide my passport. Um, and, the, the idea there was that I was afraid to be singled out. And that's another six uh, pattern too: the afraid of uh, fear of uh, deviance, the fear of being singled out or targeted. Um, that was I'd be afraid to be singled out as the only American on board, which I was because I had heard stories at that point of Americans being singled out and, um, you know, for particular bad things. And so, uh, so there's a way in which just along the plan made rational sense to me, I felt safer, <laughs> even though probably, you know, from another a more objective reason, I wasn't any safer in another way. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that, that's actually another feature of the six that I deal with. I still work with a lot is the uh, fidelity to reason. You know, I, I like things to be reasonable, uh, to, to make sense. Making sense to me is that I can understand a causal story. It make you know, there's a way in which I can put together a story that has a logical order and a causation to it that is clear to me. And uh, I, you know, again, I think I'm maybe on 
more in more refined ways. You could, you know, I can be very reasonable, but in other ways, it, that slave is almost a slavishness to having it something make sense or to be reasonable. And the uh, the fear, uh, the deeper fear uh, that I have and continue to to work with, is the fear that it doesn't make sense and that it won't make sense. And of course, in, in another, you know, in an ultimate way, it's beyond our human reason capacity to figure it all out. We don't figure it out in the end. We uh, re- realize it. Um, and that fear, I, I'm never, I'm, I can't figure it out. And the fear of the mind um, racing so much to figure something out, the unknown, in that it will become, it will break that there's a kind of basic fear of insanity, a fear that uh, I will lose the capacity to reason through it because my mind will have broken in the effort Mm -hmm. to to figure it out. It sounds really important uh, and a really difficult fear, particularly difficult. Very scary for me. Yeah, yeah. And on, on your path, um, what would you say were your key findings about like solutions for a six on a path? Well, one was actually finding a path. And, and I feel like that's one of the challenges of, of our, some of our Western ex- exoteric versions of our Western paths is that they have, um, for a lot of people and for me in particular, I couldn't find method. I couldn't find means. I couldn't, you know, I had trouble finding the path. <laughs> I could, I could find beliefs. I could find, you know, sort of exter- you know, exterior form. So finding a path was a key thing, something that felt reliable in that it wasn't just something I was believing because of a teacher's authority or it was something where I had, had, given it a try, say Buddhist meditation and using a particular technique, and I'd seen and felt a result. And so there's a confirmation. And that confirmation was was the basis of a faith and a fidelity uh, to keep going. And so, yeah, finding something and trusting that result, uh, I think, was a key was a key thing for me. And and another one was um, working with doubt. Because one of the key insights I found was uh, that doubting never comes to the end of doubting. Mm. And, and that's something that a six, for me, a six, as a six, was hard to see right away. Because doubting feels like uh, something that's going to resolve insecurity. Mm-hmm. You know, if I question it, if I'm skeptical, if I find the truth of it, it's going to resolve in some foundational, secure place. Mm-hmm. But actually, catching the mind as the doubting mind yeah was was a a a very helpful very helpful insight right it's almost like if there's a what you tell yourself is that if you keep doubting and questioning it's going to take you somewhere (laughs) like it's going to you're going to get to the answer you're going to find certainty but especially i think for a self-preservation six you never really get there, you know, it, it's, that's the, it's the illusion that you're, it's going to get you somewhere. And it really just keeps you trapped in a circular experience. That's it. And it's so per- pernicious and insidious because it's so, well, it's compelling. Like all of these patterns are so compelling to all of us in our own way. Right. So it's like, the, it, 
doubting can always doubt whatever comes up. So even this, the phrase that doubting will never come to the end of doubting can be doubted. (laughs) But at some point you just have to believe that you just have to see that the whole pattern is something that can be seen, noted, and perhaps put down. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that was a huge step for me as a self-preservation six doubting does not come to the end of doubting. Mm -hmm. Uh, you just have to put it down. Um, the, the other uh, one that's coming to mind is to move to sensation. I think that's very important. And that's still something that I, I use in my spiritual practice, which is when the mind is spinning out um, and, and I'm recognizing that it's a fear pattern to notice the sensations in the body because it, it doesn't help a six at that point or it didn't help me as a six to work on the level of thought thought is the, the thinking is too slippery. It's too quick. You know, it's hard to use thinking to sometimes dislodge thinking, but if I can move that to a sensation, because of course sensations are happening all the time, uh, it was something, it was easier to work with, you know, to work with a sensation than, than, than the thought pattern. I don't know if that's coming out clearly or making sense, but that, that was a huge step for me to work with the sensations. Makes a lot of sense. And what about the role of emotions? I mean, I know fear is an emotion, so that may be kind of a different, it's maybe it's not going to a whole different place, but what's been your, you know, experience of your emotions or your, you know, being in touch with different emotions? I love that question. It just touched my heart, actually, when you said it, <laughs> uh, because, yeah, um, love, mm. you know, and that to me is the nine. Uh, and there's a there's a great there's scripture, you know, there is no fear in love. Mm, beautiful. And so, you know, anytime I can I can kind of open the heart and be more inclusive, you know, and, and, and really see that we're all interconnected, that there's a basic goodness, um, that I'm basically good. (laughs) I don't have to doubt myself into thinking that I'm some kind of, you know, hidden monster or whatever, you know, like that if I uh, unleash some terrible thing on the world, you know, that, that's a kind of doubt that I I can have. Um, And so there's a deep way in which, you know, love kind of, resolves that the actual feeling of um that connection yeah and i just want to point out that uh, i think we are hearing from you that uh, capital w work uh, of balancing the centers of intelligence which is important for all nine types not only the six so as a head type developing access to instincts sensations and then emotions as in love and other emotions yeah thanks thanks for saying that yeah actually that brings up another uh key insight for me was the recovery of the three in me uh because you know for for me boy threes i had a big allergy toward because three that presentation of the surface image was just like (laughs) you know for me as a six just want to pick that apart because I, you know, obviously that's, uh, well, for me as a six, it was unsafe, you know, clearly there must be hiding something. They're hiding a true intention. And if I can't see that intention, well, then it must be hostile. 
Um, so for me, the recovery of the three, oh, first of all, I have three patterns in myself and we all have to play a role. We all play roles. And, and that doesn't also go away either. You know, that's okay that we play roles uh, in the world. Um, it, it, and it's okay to also take people at surface value, at safe, at, you know, on face value, that there's a way in which that helps to balance out the constant need to get under and to keep picking and keep poking. That, you know, yes, there is a natural way in which skepticism and doubt are healthy things. It's just that I'm over-functioning with those things. So to be able to take something at somewhat at face value to trust it helps to just balance it. I'm never going to lose the doubting and the skepticism. It just balances it out more. Um, and and that, that was a revelation to recover some of that in the three for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it also sounds like the high side of six is faith you know, having, you know, countering fear with faith, with a sense of faith in yourself and in others. And so it sounds like it's not just three there, that that's also part of six. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well said. So you're kind of touching into this, but how, what can you say about how maybe understanding that you were six and growing as a six has impacted your relationships? Well, I don't poke people as much. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's probably good. Um, Yeah, I could say I don't feel poked by you very often. (laughs) (laughs) When I do, it might be a good thing for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's that's been helpful. and, and taking people at, at, at more at face value. And I think that's true now, even in a more subtle way of taking people in their patterns at face value, you know, the, it's almost endless to see all of us running our patterns at a certain point, everyone's just running them. And yes, we, we can, you know, I and others, everyone's can step on each other's corns, I guess, as Gurdjieff would say, you know, like we can uh, irritate each other with our patterns, harm each other even. Um, and yet there's something about just accepting you know, accepting that we're all trying our best and that we're all, you know, so to me that there's a lot of work there is just accepting people, even in their patterns, even when it's obvious they're running their pattern, you know, and I'm running my pattern, um, but just to have a little bit more grace and a little bit more, yeah, trust, I guess, faith and trust in in the world and in, in, in the unfolding. Mm-hmm. Right. And what do you think, Trent, is something that people not always know about sixes or self-pressed sixes, uh, and, and mainly for people who have sixes in their lives? Yeah, people don't always know. Yeah. Well, uh, people probably, and I, yeah, people may know this, but. For a six in your life, reassurance is a big need. And so there's a way in which I think if if a six can both be reassured, but reassured in a more fundamental way of, of like, you know, you, you don't have to always ask me for reassurance or, you know, some, some way to transmit that sense of security, which really can only happen through living. You know, you as you live, trust is built through the living of life. You know, when you see how people respond and you actually feel it. Um, but yeah, reassurance, people may not know just how deeply of a need sixes have for, 
a kind of assurance that they're that it's okay that things are you know in a relationship in an emotional attachment you know uh, at, at work um uh also uh, appreciation I feel like the sixes do like appreciation and this, maybe this is partly the three in me, but um, there's a way in which sixes are not, you know, and I'm not typically tooting my own horn. I'm not going around, you know, because that's sort of unsafe, right. To stand out and, uh, you know, uh, be the object of jealousy or hostility, but that doesn't mean that we don't want appreciation. And I think sometimes that's a real conundrum for a six because we're not necessarily advertising our positive impacts in the world, but yet we also have a deep need for appreciation. I still want to be seen and valued for what I'm doing. And so that may not be something that's obvious either, but just to kind of notice and lift up what a six is doing, even when they're not doing it themselves. Mm. I like what you're saying. Uh, It breaks some myths about sixes. And at the same time, would you agree or not that too much, too many compliments produce like lack of trust or an opposite effect on sixes. Yeah, well, we don't want to be. We can we can sniff out flattery. <laughs> you know, we can sniff out the artifice real quick uh, because that's of course the whole pattern. You know, is is sensing that people are not being sincere. Uh, and so you don't want to necessarily, if you're working with or you're loving a six, you don't want to be artificial about these kinds of things. But I do think that there's something when someone is genuinely expressing appreciation that does, it touches my little six heart. And I might even say, oh, I don't need that compliment. Or I might say that in a way that's still part of the fear pattern of I don't want to stand out. or I don't, I don't want to be seen. I mean, there's a way in which sixes are the the inconstancy and the shifting of the sixes is so that you can't pin me down. Um, And so there's a way in which also I I may have that kind of reaction, but I'll just tell you from the secret heart of at least this six, it's, it's nice to be genuinely seen and appreciated and, and given that feedback is very encouraging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. And what's, what suggestions might you have for sixes that might be listening to this? Um, maybe they're at the beginning or the middle of their path. And, you know, what suggestions do you have since you've been on this path for a while and especially working with it? So I think in an intensive way, be doing what you do in the world and being, you know, involved in Buddhism and Christianity. Um, it all, I think you bring rich experience to this discussion. Um, what suggestions do you have for sixes uh, about what they can do on their growth path to, to, to make progress? Yeah. It's good just to, well, I think the breath is a good tool for anyone, but I would say also, especially for sixes, you know, the body, it, it's embodied. So using the breath as an object of attention, just coming back to the breath, but, but not trying to change it, not trying to control it, just looking at and just watching the body. It's always in the present moment. The breath is always present. Um, so I find that to be a very helpful technique because it's, particularly if I'm laying down, you know, sometimes a lot of the meditation practices I've done over the years and, and continue to do is uh, laying down and putting my hands on my heart. 
And there's something deeply calming about that. So there's a, there's a way in which the combination of calmness with the ability to then focus on, say, the up and down of the breath or the heartbeat, something that's embodied, has been a real anchor. Um, and so, yeah, just to do something simple like that, to kind of cultivate a practice around um, around self-calming. And, and just to know that you're, you know, you're okay. You're, all right mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know how else to say it you know yeah. it's gonna be, it's gonna work out it's gonna be fine you know and you're gonna know what to do when the time comes mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. and, you know you're basically you're basically good mm-hmm. the goodness yeah. beyond anything good or bad you know and i think it's really important that you say that because i do think that something not very many people know about sixes is they can part of the fear is they can have a sense of inner badness, you know, mm-hmm. and we sometimes say it comes from, it, it's, it's a echo of the early experience of the defense mechanism of splitting where any child can't hold good and bad together. And so with the early caregivers, the first authorities, sometimes if they, you don't get protected by them or you don't get all you need from them, you don't make them bad because you need them to be good because you rely on them and you make yourself bad. And this is something all children do, but I think splitting is a particularly six defense mechanism and that it can be scary when in times of fear, it can be like, okay, seeing the authority is good so that I'm going to be protected. But I think it's really important for, for sixes to see that as part of the ego or personality pattern that it, that, that it's not real. Um, and so I love this beautiful message of you saying you're basically good, you know, to that that's really part of the faith and part of the path is feeling that, believing that, knowing that. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Yeah. That to me is one of the, um, uh, hallmarks of a six is that we can hold both sides of things and we do that uh, very habitually and you know what are six six is two threes so we have the two identity we always have the twin we always have the good one and the bad one and you know we can we can see that both ways so clearly and when i say it's all good i don't mean you're all good in the small g good that you're uh, you're the good good part of the six and not the bad part of the six i mean with the capital g good that you know, all of us are on this path of integrating those darker shadows, those forces, those egoistic, those instincts, you know, uh, we're all on that path, but we don't have to be overly identified with one or the other. And, um, but yeah, for a six in particular, there's a, there's a special place for just not being afraid that you're somehow the bad one. You know, you're not, it's okay. I I actually, I haven't thought of this in a long time, but when I was very young, I was into um, apocalyptic uh, literature and the book of Revelation and all of these kind of scary thing. And I I actually remember clearly that I had a fear. This is really grandiose. So it's kind of embarrassing to say, but I had the actual fear at one point that I might be the Antichrist. (laughs) Because, you know, not that I... It just, it wasn't that I experienced myself as something powerful. It's just, it was more like, oh, I wonder if I'm that, you know, I wonder if I have that seed or I'm going to develop into that, or I'm going to be the one that, you know, or I'm going to follow the Antichrist or I'm going to, you know, 
So there's a way in which just that doubting around, you know, one's own goodness, it, it is yes. very deep for the six. I think there's a way, one of the things I, I think is probably really interesting to people um, and well, it's interesting to me. And th I think this would be another podcast. So I just want to maybe say something, you know, I, I think it's really interesting that you've sort of integrated the Enneagram with Buddhism, but that you also in your sort of professional life and your spiritual life, you hold Christianity and Buddhism together. Um, can you maybe say anything about how your particular spiritual path, you know, has, you know, you've either been drawn to it because of being a six or it's really helped you on your path maybe different ways that the two uh -huh. different coming together well i can say something briefly about it is that well for one my buddhism brought me back to my love of jesus mm. for one um and that the something about the singing in church uh that that had made an imprint on me as a boy but there was a way you know I would say the cultural forms, but also the, I would say the beingness, the uh, vivingness of Jesus really is still imp deeply imprinted for me. So there was a way in which that was a heart practice that I wasn't really finding in the Buddhist tradition. I mean, I had a lot of heart and devotion for my teacher. I had heart and devotion for the Buddha, but uh, a lot of the, um, I think there was just some cultural things there for me that I that my heart just resonated more with with jesus and and so i say simply that um jesus is the spirituality of my heart and buddha is the spirituality of my head <laughs> that's how i would usually say it and, I, and that's fine i don't need to <laughs> you know there there are ways i've resolved it a deeper way but i don't care to necessarily try it at all i think the question often for people is one that's a loaded question. People have an agenda, they have an angle, they want to, you know, they want to try to do theological hair splitting with me or something often when people ask the question, not always, but mm -hmm. um, that's not of interest to me at all. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, just keep it simple. <laughs> Makes sense. It's beautiful. I think the way you bring those together. Any last thing you want to ask? Udanio, I have a last question I want to pose, but any anything else before we go, we, we uh, wind this down? No, go ahead with your question. I guess I just wanted to um, ask, you know, what, what does it feel like you're working on now? Because, I mean, also I know you, so I know um, what an amazing person you are and, and how much, how your work really shows and who you are. And I think we've heard it in this conversation. But what, what's your edge now? What, what, what are you working on now as a six that, that, that might be, you know, important? Well, I, uh, I, I'm actually getting more deeply into uh, Gurdjieffian thought. So I've been rereading uh, Beelzebub's Tales and um, finding a, a lot of joy through that path of wrestling uh, with with uh, his his work of genius. I think I'm okay saying it's a work of genius. I mean, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at on 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 the more surface side, but that that has that has happily shaken loose some um, patterns for me, even just engaging the work uh, of that text, that scripture, I guess you could say. And um, it's been helpful. Uh, so I, I go again to the edge of my sanity, 
you know, that's one of the personal growing edges uh, that I'll work on. Um, it's very deep for me, very personal. Um, and yeah, there's all kinds of ways just out in the world, you know, working with my use of authority and being a leader in different organ you know, different organizations, those kinds of things. That's a growing edge uh, that will be ongoing. Um, but yeah, that for my, my own personal interest is being drawn into Gurdjieff's orbit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Cause I can imagine it's a, it's both a mental exercise, like a workout for the mind, <laughs> but also again, I like the way you put it rest. I mean, cause you know, for those of our listeners who may not know, um, a lot of what people know about Gurdjieff comes from people who have written about Gurdjieff. And certainly most of what I know about Gurdjieff has come from like his students, people who followed him. And, um, and that's a great source to learn about his teaching. However, he did have a lot of his own work, but it was, as you might expect, it was very um, enigmatic. The way he communicates is not, is, is, uh, is very, um, it, I mean, it, it is a work of genius, but it's not easy to understand. Let's put it that way. Um, so I love that you're, I love the joy with which you're sort of engaging in that, because I think that's kind of what he intended it for is to be wrestled with, to be, you know, chewed on, you know, reflected on, allowed to kind of live inside you until it, it births new insights and experiences. And I, and I, and I've seen you talk about it and I love talking about it with you because I see the way you're engaging that. So it sounds like both a workout for a mind, but also getting beyond the mind through the, 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 the real gift that you have of, of your mind. Well, and one, one thing I'll say about it that uh, rings a bell is somebody was pointing out that uh, one, one, another author commenting on Beelzebub's Tales was pointing out that there is a certain quality of faith at the beginning. And this is true of all the path. It's true of the six. You have to have just enough faith at the beginning to start. <laughs> and so the faith, like, he's got something to say. There's something powerful. If, if you if you already bought into that, then there's a kind of way in which you, you know, you come into relationship with it and you have, and then you can see the confirmation and the, and the journey is part of the journey. So that would say that's a good metaphor for the path in general is, you know, there's that sense of like, yeah, I think he's got something here. You know, there's something he's transmitting and it's not just information, you know, and it's not just a head game. It's, uh, it, it's, it is the nature of, 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 uh, of, of something more like a sacred text that, you know, can, you can ingest and can do its work in you and you can inhabit. Yes. But that takes a little bit of faith. That's beautiful. Right. And faith to, I think, stick with it as well as, uh, as begin. Um, and I think you were, use the word transmitting in its fullest sense there. And I think that's really the word. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So thank you so much, Trent, for being with us in this conversation. Um, it's just a, such a pleasure to know you, and we really appreciate you sharing your experience on your path uh, with our listeners and viewers. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing your path. Uh, I think this has been very useful for all Type 6 listeners, but also 
for whoever is willing to learn the Enneagram further and who has a six in their lives. Well, I certainly hope so. And uh, just thanks for giving me the opportunity. And I hope it, uh, hope in some small way it's touched some listener and helped them along the way. That would be, that would be my hope. I feel sure that it has. Thank you, Trent. So that's our episode for today. We thank you so much for listening and we hope you tune in again next time for the Enneagram 2.0 podcast, where we talk about all things Enneagram. <laughs>